Welcome to The Irony of Beauty, a fortnightly podcast hosted by skincare experts Fiona and Rose. They love a good chat and sometimes a heated debate about all things skin and nutrition, calling out scaremongering, misinformation and misleading marketing in an ever-confusing world of beauty and wellness. Please note, the information provided is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace qualified medical advice. Welcome back, Rose. How are you feeling? I'm feeling very excited and the sun's out and I feel great. I'm very positive about this. I love this topic that we're going to talk about today. Glad you've got sun. It's a little chilly, a little chilly in Sydney. Um, well, I'm excited too because, again, I'm still on my skincare ingredient rant that we started uh, <laughs> in the last episode. Um, and today we're really going to be carrying that on, talking about some of those common skincare ingredient myths. And I think... I think for me, when I first, when I, I think for me, it was when I first went to product training and I remember sitting in a product knowledge class. Actually, no, it wasn't product knowledge. It was a generic um, skincare company. So it was like an education because I'm always studying and it was, mm-hmm. you, know, you get skincare academies type thing that do further education for qualified skin professionals. It was one of those, and it was on, um, I don't know, sensitive skin and rosacea, and it, it was that. And they were talking about all these skincare ingredients, and I'm like, how come I've never heard of these ingredients before? And I'm like, everyone in here knows about these ingredients. And then you started to feel a little bit scared to ask a question because everybody knew these ingredients, and I these were ingredients I'd never heard of, like and red raspberry extract and, and stuff. And then, you know, after a while I clicked that, you know, the although it was generic education, it was all geared to promoting a particular skincare brand because this brand had all those particular ingredients. And they were also scaremongering on ingredients. So the generic education was we're generic, we don't mention any skincare brands, but at the same time it was don't use petroleum products, don't use mineral oil, don't use sulfates, don't, you know, don't use lanolin. That was a big one. Um, these, these ingredients don't use fragrance. And so, of course, I was like, well, everybody else seems to know this. How come I didn't know this? I wasn't taught this. This must be true. You know, I was a, a young therapist and I was believing all of this information and it very much comes down to a little bit of information can be harmful. So it was basically talking about ingredients, but talking out of context, really. So a bit like my mm-hmm. Apple analogy in our, our previous podcast, you automatically then think, well, that must be bad for you. So it's a little bit like comedogenic ingredients, for instance. We know certain ingredients may be classified as comedogenic, which means cause block pores and and breakouts. However, just because an ingredient is in a product doesn't necessarily mean that the product is going to be comedogenic. Mm -hmm. To to give you an example, you could have a comedogenic ingredient. Let's say isopropyl myristate is a comedogenic ingredient. It often is used with silicones, and I think that's where silicones get the bad rap because silicones are often blended with ingredients that make the skin feel silky smooth and velvety 
it's not the silicones that are comedogenic. It's usually the ingredients they're blended with, but unfortunately the silicones get the bad rap. But it's usually things like myrostates and things like that that give that velvet finish. You get them mm-hmm. in you get them in um, foundations and, and things like that. They can be comedogenic. But ultimately, just because it's in a product, it depends how much is in there as to whether it's going to be comedogenic or not. So, for instance, you may see it in there. If you're not getting breakouts or congestion, it's not comedogenic. But if you are and you're getting what I call acne cosmetica and you're getting the little bumps, you've got a problem. The same goes for you could have ingredients that aren't comedogenic, but all mixed together, all these different plant oils, for instance, have become comedogenic. So again, we were saying earlier in a previous podcast, you can't tell too much from an inky list. The same really with certain ingredients that we're taught sometimes aren't good for us. Even a comedogenic ingredient, finally, you've got to look at you know, is that product causing breakout? If it is, it's probably because it's got comedogenic ingredients in there. But if you're not getting breakout, there may not be enough of that ingredient in there to cause a problem. Or you may not have the skin type that will break out from comedogenic ingredients. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've got oily skin, prone to congestion, large open pores, you're going to be more prone to getting breakouts from from certain products. And usually makeup and SBS tend to be the worst culprits. But also mm-hmm. c- certain plant oils can be quite comedogenic as well. And for something to be comedogenic, really it means that it has to be able to enter into the follicle and cause irritation. So quite often, you know, things that have got a very large molecule, like a silicone, aren't in a molecular size to cause that irritation. So so certain ingredients will be comedogenic because of their irritation potential, which is quite interesting. Mm. That is interesting. I do see um, sunscreens causing that type of impact on skin. I see that from clients wearing different types of foundation and makeup. Um, So they're probably the two main products that I would see that bumpiness um, created from that type of product, yeah, blocking the pores. With sunscreens, the thing with sunscreens, sunscreens are very hard to formulate. And so most Mm. sunscreens will need to be in an oil base or a silicone base. Now, when they're in an oil base, as I was saying before, certain oils can have the potential to be more comedogenic than others. It depends what oils are and what combination is used and then what other ingredients are are put in there to give a nice even coverage on the skin. So that Mm -hmm. tends to be why people break out more with sunscreens. And then again, it depends what actual sunscreen is used whether that is then you know working to cause more potential breakout on the skin as well and quite often it can just be a case of trial and error as can makeup as well you know some makeup will make you break out some won't and sometimes it's very well mm. by the inculist I mean I've got a makeup primer that I love it's I call it my on-camera glow so you put it on under makeup if you're on camera, and I think it's actually called Strobe Effect, it's a MAC primer. It gives the most yes. It gives the most beautiful, luminous skin. But I know, as you can see, <laughs> um, 
But you are looking particularly radiant today, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I've got it on today, to be honest. But um, <laughs> that's just natural. <laughs> but my point being, I know every time I use it, I will get a little bit of congestion. So I use it very sparingly. Mm. I I don't use it every day because I would get breakouts. I'm aware that that is a trigger for me. That particular um, product for my skin, I know, will cause breakouts. And I know certain if I have products that are too oily. Um, and it depends on the oil, you know, um, oils that are high in oleic acid that can tend to be, um, cause breakouts in the skin or irritation as well. Plant oils, um, not all plant oils, but some, and we know that coconut oil, for instance, can be very comedogenic as well. Saying that though, it depends how much coconut oil is in a product. If you're using neat coconut oil on the skin, more likely a problem. You know, when people put coconut oil in their hair and they get breakouts. Oh Yeah. But if it's a small amount in a skincare product, um, it depends how much is in there. But also it's a coconut derivative. That's very different. That's not going to have the same effect. Mm. Talking pure coconut oil. And the amount that you use is obviously going to make a difference as well. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, when we're talking about comedogenic ingredients, for instance, how much is in there? What is the skin type it's being used? What else is it being mixed with? Is it a wash-off product? If it's a wash-off product, it's not going to stay on the skin to cause breakout. People don't think about that. Um, again, you know, if you've got a wash-off product and it's got, I don't know, a, a fragrance in there, it's unlikely that it's going to cause irritation because the contact time on the skin is so short. So it's unusual to get reactions from wash-off products. Saying that, it's not not possible and it is possible if you are severely allergic to fragrance or you're using a very stripping, drying cleanser, yes, you can absolutely get skin irritation and dryness. So I think my point being, it's not as simple as just going that ingredient's good and that ingredient is bad. And I think as skin professionals, that is where we can do better because we are told often by a company that's promoting a particular brand to avoid certain ingredients because they have they have a motive. They don't want you to go to other brands. So they'll say something about don't use that. That's not great to put you off that brand. And that's where mm. we start reading between the lines and going, well, what's your motive for saying that? You know, what's the evidence? Show me the evidence for why you're saying that. And is it actually true what that person's saying? Or are they telling me apples contain cyanide? And then I'm now thinking I'm going to die from eating an, eating an apple, which just simply isn't true. It's a load of rubbish. So, you know, <laughs> that's where we've got to start to have that level of critical thinking, I think. Absolutely. And it comes down to understanding the skin condition as well. Um, I mean, what you would prescribe for a lipid dry skin would be completely different to what you would prescribe for a skin experiencing oil, excessive oil or acne. So, you know, you may have an ingredient that could be comedogenic, but then you wouldn't prescribe it for a skin that would be acne prone because it wouldn't need that type of product. So understanding the formulation is incredibly important, but also understanding the skin that you are also prescribing it for is important. You know, that that's essential because then you will create other issues if you don't understand the products that you're prescribing. Absolutely. And as I mentioned on the previous podcast, you know, I went to a, a launch the other week and it was like, you know, we've got no nasties. And I think my biggest bug, and I often, you know, I, had, I was 
put up with a friend last night and they said, I love when you get triggered on Instagram because you go on this rant and start writing about, this is not true, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> um, you know, my, my biggest rant is, you know, clean beauty because I think that, mm. is, that is something now that all brands are, are hopping onto because it's trending. Clean beauty is trending. And basically what clean beauty is, there's no there's no meaning behind it. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. But really what it is, it's scaremongering and it's saying free from. And brands will say free from nasties, free from parabens, free from sulfates, free from whatever else they want to say. And because it says free from, people will automatically then presume, well, it must be better because it's free from, or that free from must be a dangerous ingredient. And this is where, unfortunately, it's got completely out of control. And unfortunately, it's it's spread into professional skincare. And that mm. really, really hurts my soul. I literally, it, it really keeps me awake at night because it's taking all the joy away from skincare. It's taking the professionalism away as well. You know, you can't say that product's bad because it's got this, this, and this in it. As we've already keep saying, you know, formula is is king. But there is no science behind clean beauty. You know, you've just hit the nail on the head there, um, and that's the truth. It is, it's become very sales-orientated. It's another new marketing ploy, taking it to the extent of even repackaging and reformulating, changing the colours, making them more block colours, very white, very crisp, which represents clean beauty. Oh, this must be clean. This must be free of nasties because the colour of the product itself and the way that it's packaged actually says, this is good for me. This is clean. It's an, it's a marketing ploy um, and it's become another sales-orientated pitch. If I hear one more brand, one more new brand launch that says clean beauty, free from <laughs> free from parabens, yeah. From nasties, no nasties. If I hear one more, I think I'm going to explode. I can't cope with it. It's like, come on, guys, think of something new. It, I, I don't get it. I, I actually don't understand why somebody would bring out a clean beauty brand in this day and age without any evidence-based ingredients and think that it's a novel idea and to me, it's just misleading the consumer because the consumer thinks that they're getting something that's really healthy. Pure. Yeah, healthy and pure. That's right. And it actually doesn't mean anything. You know, I could say, oh, this, this product is free from whatever. And you go, oh, it's clean beauty. It's, you know, everyone's calling it clean beauty. And I, I think that's where, you know, there's absolutely no science behind it. And I don't know where it started but it's just got such a competitive industry that everyone now is like, oh, I better not put this ingredient. And even as a, you know, I've worked with brands and product development and in formulations and you're like, oh, I feel sorry for the brands in a way because you're doomed if you bring out a product with a paraben. Now, there's nothing wrong with parabens. It was a poor study that was done years ago, but now everyone doesn't want to use them and everyone's put free from parabens. So now brands don't choose them because people don't want them. Um, we're, we're now then going down even further. We're now beginning to see a very concerning trend of free-from preservatives, you know, being marketed. And this one really drives me insane when people are saying free-from preservatives because 
do you know how dangerous microbes are in a product? They can cause blindness. They are so, if you have a contaminated skincare product, it is so dangerous. So to be promoting products as preservative-free, in my opinion, it's a public liability. And mm. then I question, does that person know their formula? Does that person really understand what they're saying? Or have they just caught into this hype online that, you know, preservative-free is, is better, which obviously it's not. It's very dangerous. Um and then, of course, very few products can be preservative-free because the more actives that you have in a product, the more nutrients you have in a product, not only are they going to be beneficial for the skin, but, of course, this is the food that the microbes love to, to multiply on. So the more active and more nutrient-rich a product, the more of a preservative system it will need. So... To be able to say preservative-free, you really would have to have a completely oil-based product, so anhydrous basically, or such a small amount of water, there's not enough in there for bacteria to go to grow. So mm-hmm. if, you had, if you had, say, a, a face oil that could be preservative-free, it wouldn't need a preservative. You'd need antioxidants to prevent oxidation of the oil, but it could be preservative-free. The only other time you would maybe have a preservative-free product is if you had a very alkaline product or a very acidic product like a chemical peel, for instance, because the bacteria can't survive in an extreme pH. Other than that, you need something to control the microbes. So if somebody then says, like recently I went into a skin center and they said, oh, no, it's preservative-free. I'm like, mm, oh, because I've looked and I see what preservatives you use, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with preservatives, but even if they're saying preservative-free, it would still have something in there like um, glycols. Glycols are a form of preservative. It would probably have a higher than normal amount of alcohol, like an ethanol-type alcohol, either SD alcohol or food-grade alcohol. You know, they'll market it as that to have an antimicrobial effect. So I think it's important to understand that if you have zero microbial control, that means the product hasn't gone through regulatory checks because it wouldn't have passed the microbial testing. Or you've got some kind of ingredient in there to control the, the microbes, which, again, anything like a preservative or there's a lot of different ingredients in skincare that have the potential to cause skin irritation. And, yes, some preservatives may be irritating to some skin, but that's up to the formulator to have a good formulation to make sure that they don't bring out, you know, irritating products. Do you think this whole preservative-free thing has come from I want something natural on my skin? Do you think that's where it's all started? I think it started from scaremongering on parabens. Mm. And everybody moved to phenoxyethanol and started using that. Then people mm-hmm. started scaremongering on phenoxyethanol, which is a form of preservative. And now then everyone's going for more food-grade preservatives, so things like um, mm-hmm. sodium benzoate, benzoyl alcohol, uh, but then some of uh, sorbates and things like that. But then um, some of those preservatives can be quite sensitizing, and I find particularly for rosacea-type skin, mm-hmm. benzoyl alcohol, for instance, I've found can cause flare-ups. I mean, a rosacea skin, let's be honest, can flare up with all sorts of different things. But alcohol, for instance, on a rosacea skin can be a problem as well. 
So going to the more nature identical or natural preservatives aren't necessarily safer. And of course, then you have to have much higher amounts of them. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for the brands because they're constantly trying to come out with new marketing angles. But then you've got to then start to question the the efficacy. And I know recently some brands have been recalled for having microbial contamination. Some microbial contamination you will see because you'll literally have mold growing in your product and some you might not see. Yeah. So it is important. I want to know that my products have got a safe preservative system or some kind of microbial control in there. And any good product that is well-regulated would do. So I think we need to move away from the misleading marketing term or the scaremongering on preservatives. Well, I know from a professional's perspective, I certainly wouldn't want to be prescribing a client a product that is rancid or off or potentially going to create some sort of dangerous health issue for them. You know, they wouldn't be able to last on the shelf if they didn't have some form of preservative. You know, you'd literally have to sell them within, what, two days? Um, and use them within two days. So, yeah, it's it's unrealistic to think that you could buy a product that is essentially preservative-free. Mm, absolutely. And it's scary to see the microbial growth because I've, you know, played around before and, you know, made up little concoctions and um, not put in a preservative just to see what happens. And literally within mm. about five days, you start to see the contamination appearing. I think I've done posts in it in the past with pictures of it, of the mould. Mm-hmm growing it's it's frightening how quickly it grows so um even a poorly formulated formula that the ph changes because any formula will get ph drift and certain preservatives have to be within a very tight ph otherwise they become ineffective and some preservatives can be sensitive to heat as well and become less effective so it's very complicated and i think as skin professionals we need to understand how products are formulated a little bit better so we can give better advice because I think to the general consumer, you know, they're hearing parabens are bad now, phenoxyethanol is bad, this is what's out there. I'm not saying it is bad, it's not bad. Um, and I think, you know, we we need to bring that, that balance back and you will find that there are some preservatives perhaps that you may be sensitive to it, then finding a skincare brand that has a preservative system that works for you because everybody reacts differently. And it also depends what else is in the formula. You know, if it's got glycols and hydroxy acids and actives in combination, then of course it's going to be more irritating. So I think when we scaremonger, we forget that quite often those active ingredients can be just as irritating when used in the wrong way or in too higher amount as well. And we don't tend to tell our clients that, you know, oh, did you know hydroxy acids may cause skin sensitivity and make you more sensitive to sunlight? That's the irony. Well, then it comes down to the, yeah, that's the irony of it, exactly. And it comes down to the professional and and the prescription um, and how you're actually recommending your client to use these products. AHAs are great, but under the proper prescription and a proper direction on how to use those ingredients, they can be amazing for the skin. Yeah, mm. and some people, they're horrendous for the skin, you know. Absolutely. Some people are just like, you know, I don't do well with hydroxy acids on my skin at all. I, whenever I go for skin treatments, I don't don't put hydroxy acids on me. I react. My, I just, my skin doesn't need it. I've had enough peels in my lifetime. I want thick, fat skin. I don't want. Yes. You know, I, I've got to a stage where, you know, don't, don't, 
appeal me. I don't need it, but somebody else might. And again, there's there's shades of grey. There's no right or wrong, but it's about understanding when to use those ingredients. But yeah, don't go and have a peel and don't use a strong hydroxy acid product or any hydroxy acid product. Then go and line the sun. You're going to have a problem. Most definitely. It's just understanding the effect of these ingredients. But it's also we need to have respect for ingredients and respect for the science that goes alongside formulating these products and making them safe and making them effective and giving clients and therapists the results that we're wanting to achieve. You know, that's a huge thing. We shouldn't be underestimating the formulation or and ha- what it takes to actually bring a product together and keep it safe for, for people to use, you know. So essentially, yes, there's going to be some form of preservative in a product. It's going to be a preservative. Then you've got to think about, you know, we've spoken about fragrance before, but, you know, if you want a completely fragrance-free product, you're then limited as to what ingredients you can use because some ingredients have got quite strong smelling base smells. Now, a lot of people don't want a strong chemical smell or, a, you know, a cheesy smell or a, you know, vinegary type smell. They don't want it. So then you have to put something in to mask it or you change your ingredients. So it is quite a complicated process and you've got to think, mm. you've got to think about the formulation, but you've got to think about what people want to put on their face as well. You know, I've often put things on my face and my husband's like, oh my God, what have you got on? What have you, what's that? You smell awful. And then other times he's like, oh, you smell nice. Um, <laughs> so we do have to take that enjoyment process of skincare into consideration as well because I think that whole ritual of skincare can make you feel good or not so good as well and you've got to enjoy using your skincare and that's what I say about SPF for example you know this is this huge debate on chemical versus SPF and I'd love to know your your feedback on that Mm -hmm. yeah um there are certain sunscreens I've got both in the clinic I have sunscreens that do have a more chemical-based filter to them. Um, and then I've got sunscreens that are known to be physical sunscreens. They still essentially have some form of chemical filter in them, but they're more predominantly zinc oxide, titanium oxide based. Um, if they're micronized, it's great because they will not look so white on the skin, but they can be a little occlusive for certain skins. Um, so that's the only thing that I find with those types of sunscreens, um, using them on a skin that is acne prone or problematic, um, can be a little occlusive and create an environment for bacteria to breed. Um, but essentially if you're using a sunscreen that does have a higher amount of a chemical filter, it is going to create more irritation on the skin. It's going to create more heat on the skin. And for some skin conditions, it's, it's a not ideal product. So for skins that have irritation like rosacea, have a lot of heat in the skin already because of the condition that they have, um, inflammatory skin conditions, dermatitis, using a sunscreen that is a predominantly chemical-based filter can actually be quite irritating. I have seen that happen. Um, so I would choose a more physical-based titanium dioxide, zinc oxide-based. It tends to keep the skin a little cooler Um and, and just is a little bit more friendly to those skin conditions in particular. And I think, it again, it, it depends because I think more, more modern sunscreens, actually, you can have chemical sunscreens that are actually designed for sensitive skin. So there, there are mm. some chemical ones that may be irritating, um, but there are also ones that can be good for sensitive skin because we've got, we've got new SPFs now that are, that are quite incredible. And, Look, 
I'm I'm about not scaremongering on, you know, one is better than the other because if you've got a darker skin tone, you cannot use zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. I don't care how, how micronized it is. Even I mm-hmm. don't like a physical SPF when it leaves the white cast. Most of them make you look a little bit grey looking. And the problem with physical SPFs quite often, they've got this slight white white cast. And then, of course, if you on camera or you have, you know, you, you do on camera work with lighting, you can look quite white. So Absolutely true. I don't like that. It doesn't sit well under makeup. And then, of course, with with chemical, if you've got a darker skin, they tend to be much better because the darker skin does not mm-hmm. quite cast. And I think if people then start thinking, oh, you know, chemicals are bad, which I hear a lot of, and a lot of it is outdated information or, you know, we've got much newer technology. So I don't think we can say all chemical SPFs are nasty because they're not. And I think when we do that, we scaremonger and then people are not going to want to use any SPF and they're going to put themselves at even more risk. So I I use the chemical SPF. I prefer it. It's um, lighter on the skin and it's see-through. I don't get breakout. I've used um, some physical ones that are quite thick, but there are some physical ones that are quite quite nice with a tint. It, it Ultimately, it comes down to finding what works for you. It's such a personalised thing when it comes to SPF. Some people like oh, yeah. Some like a matte finish, some like a sheen. Yes. I like a nice dewy glow. But if you've got oily skin, you're going to want a matte finish. And I think sometimes you need a variety of different SPFs to suit different people. And when you find the right SPF, stick with it. Um, but again, you know, some physical SPFs can actually have, you know, a physical SPF isn't necessarily natural. It does go through quite a bit of chemical processing and then they can have um, SPF boosters in there that often people don't know about that aren't, you know, aren't natural. And you've then got the pH of something like zinc oxide that will usually naturally revert to about a pH of seven. So that's not necessarily, you know, do you want a pH? Healthy. So there's pros and cons for all of them. So correct. My point is a physical SPF can be just as irritating as a good chemical. You you could have a really good non-irritating chemical SPF or you could have an irritating physical or you could have, you've got to try and see. And um, ultimately it depends what's in that, what else is in that product as to why it's irritating as well. Um, I think, you know, we used to say physical reflect and chemical absorb the heat and that's why they're sensitizing. We now know that's not true. We know that they both reflect, I think, physical, uh, sorry, chemical absorb something like um a tiny tiny amount i got that the right way around yeah um yeah so physical we used to say the physical yeah they both absorb sorry that's right yes they do the or the chemical sunscreens also yeah (laughs) the chemical sunscreens also tend to be a little bit more oil-based um and these days obviously with skin everyone that really wants uh, that is serious about their skin they want that beautiful um, look into their skin that they don't want to wear makeup. So people are looking for sunscreens now that do have a tint that give you that beautiful chic look without wearing a heavy foundation because that's what we're all destined or that's what we all want to achieve with our skin, right? So I find that the more chemical-based sunscreens tend to be a little bit oilier. Um, and for clients that are wearing makeup, they don't necessarily want that finish 
from a sunscreen it interferes with their makeup so that's one of the challenges that I've had to really face with finding the right sunscreen for a client really understanding do they wear makeup every day is it going to be worn under makeup um you know it, it yeah it's a problem and then I find it the other way around actually I find the physical one doesn't fit under my makeup as well the chemical one and, and again it depends and that's that's true um but yeah saying that yeah they both absorb I got that the wrong way around anyway back to front anyway basically it's very little <laughs> difference between between the two of them in the way that they work we used to say mm. physical reflect but we know now that physical also um absorbs, absorbs as well that's, yeah that's what we were trying to say <laughs> it's just got a higher amount of that zinc oxide that's why we get the whiteness on our skin you know mm. um but it's not going to be great for everyone and look I think there's some really good physical ones I think there's some really bad physical ones I think there's some really good chemical ones and I think there's some really bad chemical ones and I think you know sometimes it's it's trial and error for me it's it's about I don't like a tinted SPF because I stop at my jaw because I don't want to get um, the tint on my clothes. Okay. Mm -hmm. For me, whilst I I like the tint on the face, it automatically makes me stop going down here. So I like to be able to use it on the chest and, and the neck as well, and I don't want to get um, marks on my clothing. So for me, I like something I can I can use here. So I've, I have got a tinted SPF I like, but then I have to put a different SPF here um so for me it's easier if it's just an invisible one I can put all over that that sits well under the makeup and again it's it's a personal thing but I my point I guess is it's trial and error for each individual most definitely and it comes down to like you said personal choice me personally I have a tinted sunscreen that I wear every day because I don't want to wear a heavy foundation to work every single day. Um, occasionally I'm wearing masks throughout the day in clinic, so I don't want to have a product that is a foundation on my skin. So I'll wear a tinted sunscreen and then I'll use a separate one right. for the neck and chest area. So, But it's a personal thing, you know, and it, it just goes back to that same, you know, um, process of finding the right one for every single client, whatever suits them. Exactly, and I think... I think the main thing is don't be scared if you are using a chemical one. Um, SPF is better than than no SPF. And you can actually see the difference in people's skin that don't go out in the sun. I remember when I moved to Australia in 2000, actually before that I was backpacking and I was working as a therapist here. And mm -hmm. I was, because I was working hands-on in the UK and then um, I, I got a job here and I was shocked at the difference in the skin type between English skin and Australian skin. And there were women in their 20s that I thought were in their 30s or old. That, well, basically, I thought the women were 10 years older, 10, yeah, 10 years older than they were because of the sun damage. Because in the UK, they didn't have the sun damage like they did here. And it was quite shocking, actually. I mean, I probably caught up now because I've been living here for 23 years. And, you know, skin all looks the same to me now. But I do notice it when I go back to the UK. There's just not the sun damage that you see on the skin here. Oh, that would have been a huge eye-opener for you. Um, and I do see that with clients as well. And and clients themselves actually compare themselves to their friends. So, you know, my clients that are educated and wearing sunscreen and how important it is regardless of your skin condition, um, 
they compare themselves to their friends that haven't worn sunscreen for years and years and they've they may be the same age that but they've aged incredibly differently you know they've got more lines more wrinkles more pigmentation you know all sorts of things that are associated with um with sun exposure glycation you know like there's so many things that happen when you don't protect yourself from daily sun exposure long-term sun exposure mm. it's interesting i find it really fascinating so do i but she's being mm. i'm like Ooh. <laughs> oh yeah even you know every skin I should be Dave, wearing it. Dave came in the other day. Have I got a sunspot? Have I got a little bit of pigmentation? I said, yes, darling. <laughs> Getting an age spot, I'm afraid. It was on his driver's side. He does wear SPF every day, but because like, <gasps> he's not 50 yet, it's like he's beginning to like <gasps> have a little bit of pigmentation. I said, keep wearing that, <laughs> darling. Keep wearing that SPF. Mm. So let's talk then. Because I've been sort of talking about, you know, scaremongering, clean beauty, preservatives, all that stuff. Let's talk because this is a big thing in skincare and I'm seeing it a lot on social media at the moment. Mm -hmm. Influencers calling out skin professionals when they say we use professional grade, medical grade skincare. Oh, yeah. This is a big one. I see that a lot. TikTok, Instagram. I'd like to know where they're getting their information from. And, well, I've been in product trainings before where it's taught that you can't buy a good product from, you know, a pharmacy and that you have to go to a professional skincare and get medical-grade skincare. So what does medical-grade mean? Because then we've got other people calling out on social going, what a load of rubbish, there's no such thing as medical-grade. Now, where it gets complicated for the therapist, for the skin professional, there are some brands that say you have to have a doctor in your clinic for us to be able to provide you with the product. There are brands that do that. And I'm sure you've had that experience. Oh, absolutely. You have to have a dermal therapist or you have to have a doctor in clinic for you to have the brand. And then there was just a brand that got called out last week They've got a medical grade brand and they've got a consumer brand and they're exactly the same product but they're marketed. One's to the clinic and one's to the consumer. And it happens in nutritional products as well. You've got practitioner products and then you've got consumer products and some brands are exactly the same. But one's you can buy in the supermarket and one is practitioner recommended. But if you look at the label, it's the same. Sometimes, <laughs> sorry, I'm bursting your bubble now, <laughs> <laughs> but but sometimes they will be different. So I'm not saying they're all the same, but sometimes there'll be some practitioner products that will be stronger with nutritional products. But there are, mm -hmm. my point being, there are some brands that are professional and they also have a retail line and those two brands are the same brand. Okay? And you just look at the labels. You know, yeah, same. That, that does happen. I have seen that happen as well. So it's marketing. Mm -hmm. so my point being, though, for the, for the therapist, it's very consuming. And I've been on both sides. I've been the therapist. I've to, oh, you know, we can get the doctor only brand. And then I've been, you know, I've, I've been on the product side where, you know, it's like, well, I want to get into that dermatology clinic, but they won't have the product because the beauty salon down the road has got the product and they want to differentiate themselves. Yes. Let's put doctor only on this one and let's put. Um, on the other, let's have that for the, the skin therapist. Let's have that as a professional product. So is there such a thing as doctor-only skincare? 
I don't think there is because if there is, it's prescription only and it needs a prescription. Absolutely, 100% right. The medical grade skincare that is doctor only comes from a doctor that needs a prescription. Everything that we are using in clinic, you cannot classify as medical grade skincare because it isn't. And it's a cosmeceutical, but even that word is loosely thrown around as well, you know. Is it pharmaceutical? Is it cosmeceutical? Like how far do we go into this? Because essentially anything that is medical grade really does come from a doctor's prescription. That's what I think too. Um, Yeah. So then how do we get around the whole you can only have it if there's a doctor in the clinic? I think they say that number one for marketing, but also number two, there are products out there that doctors want their own product because they it's just like I said another marketing tool but number three um the reason why they do say that you have to be affiliated with a doctor to stock a particular brand is because they want a level of knowledge from that therapist so most of the time if you're stocking a brand that you need to be affiliated with a doctor with it will mean that you need to potentially mix up things yourself so they want to know that they have I guess a bit of um comfort in knowing if that's the right word in that therapist um, that she knows what she's doing with those ingredients so I think really that's what it comes down to um, I and a bit of marketing obviously but I think that's really what it's all about it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a medical grade product I would never tell a client that my any of the brands that I stock in clinic are medical grade because the only thing that is medical grade it comes from a prescription from a doctor and again with you know professional only skincare, Really, that just comes down to having your product prescribed by a skin professional and that's really what that means. So I see both sides with that. I I get that, yeah, this is professional grade, clinical grade because it's sold through professional skin clinics and skin professionals. However, could it be sold in a department store? Yes, it could, and that's what happens a lot where brands are clinic only and then the brand realises, wow, we could be selling a lot more if you went direct to the consumer and then suddenly you see a, a counter pop up in David Jones where that product used to be only in a skincare clinic. Now it's in David Jones or it's in a department store or wherever. Um, and that's really, that's all that it means. And then somebody, a skin person in the department store is recommending it as well. And I just think that just, we have to lose the pretense of it and just sort of, call it out as it is, there is no difference between the actual product necessarily. However, um, it is being recommended by a skin professional. It is. Um, But in saying that, I think there are brands out there that are now stocked in department stores as well as a clinic environment and that's okay because you can essentially sell a product to a client that you think might be okay for their skin. And I'm talking about the person behind the counter here who doesn't necessarily have that underpinning knowledge or the fundamental knowledge behind skin health but still able to recommend a product because they've been taught by the brand educator. Or they might have that. What? Correct. That is is true. I will acknowledge that. (laughs) But then what happens is myself being in a clinic environment, we get the phone calls from the clients who are our clients coming to see us for treatments but have purchased products elsewhere because there is a gift with purchase or there is a 20% off sale. And we get the clients calling us saying, Rose, I bought this product from such and such a place 
I'm having reactions with their skin, with my skin. What do I do? So I'm having them to fix this situation when that client hasn't purchased that product from me. So sometimes there are situations where things are incorrectly prescribed. Um, and I guess that's where I get a little bit um, fiery um, on that because products that have active ingredients and that have good quality ingredients are being sold to clients that aren't necessarily the right product for that client. And it does happen. Um, or even, you know, if you're a skincare junkie and there is a gift with purchase or you see a new product or everyone's raving about a new ingredient or a new product and you go, I want to try that. And then you're, you're using all these different products or you may be using too much of the same ingredient and then you can have a reaction as well. So that is an issue too. And it oh, is, 100%. And it's frustrating for the skin professional when you've been doing all this work with treatments and you've got them on the home care regime and then they're like, oh, I ran out, so I just popped in here and I picked Oh, yeah. And that, so that is frustrating as well. And I also then see why you would say, well, this is professional skincare because I want you to use this because I professionally prescribed it for you because that does get very irritating when that happens. And we're all guilty of it, you know, next bright shiny thing that comes along. Oh, what's this? I'll go and, I'll go and buy it. Um, and if there's a new cream out, I will go and try it. I will never say a product is good or bad without trying it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, most definitely. I can give an opinion on whether I think it might be good or bad or whether it's worth the money, but ultimately I will not give an opinion about a product unless I have personally used it and tried it. And I don't think it's fair on a brand if you make a comment without personally having tried that product because sometimes we can have these. That's actually a good point. We can have these preconceived ideas about something and then go, you know what, actually that was really good. So I will always try a product. And the same goes for, you know, there's some professional brands that I've tried that everyone raves about. And I thought, what a load of rubbish. This product is absolutely <laughs> And people are paying hundreds of dollars. I've, I've been in that situation where um, one of my own brands that I do stock in the clinic and um, I've tried that brand of skincare and I can't use it. Um, it doesn't work for me. doesn't agree with me. But then I have clients that their skin absolutely thrives on that brand. So... Yeah, that does that absolutely does happen. But without trying it, you really can't comment. Yeah. I think, yeah, you have to comment. And as you said, just because it didn't work for you doesn't necessarily it's not going to work for someone else. And I think that's something that you can get very caught up in by recommending something that you love and then you recommend it to everyone and it might not be the right product for them. So for instance, Oh yeah. I don't like scrubs. I don't like mm -hmm. cleansers. I don't like eye product. Like I, I wouldn't. I don't use an eye cream. Just I don't believe in them. I mean, there's a time and a place for them. And if you want something for decongesting and puffy eyes, and yeah, I'm not saying don't get them. I'm just saying they're not my thing. So if mm -hmm. you try and sell me a scrub, a stripping foaming cleanser, not you know, depends on the cleanser, but I've just I don't want to sit there and froth it all up and or um, an eye cream. I'm I'm just not interested. So you can sit there and sell it to me, but I'm not going to buy it. So I think it's really just, I think it's understanding who you're recommending a product to. And I think it's important to understand that some products can also be multifunctional and some products can be used around the eyes and around the neck. You don't need to have a trillion different products, but if you want a trillion different products, that's fine too. It, it's in, up to the individual. I went to a clinic the other week and she said, this is a night cream. I said, oh, so I have to have a different one for the day. Yes, you need a different one in the day. So, okay, so, oh, and a different cleanser. 
and a toner in the day. And there's, there's like five products for the day and then five different products at nighttime. I was just like, you've lost me. I'm out of here. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Now, for some people that don't know much, they might go, oh, gosh, okay, and then get overwhelmed and then use it incorrectly and goodness knows what. But each to their own. Some people like the ritual and the long step process, and that's fine if it's working for you. But other people, if they just want to cleanse and moisturize an SPF and go, that's all they need to do. You have to work with everyone. Most definitely. And it comes back to asking the right questions in the consultation process. Um, you know, finding out if that client's only used to using QV wash and QV moisturizer, you cannot go and prescribe them an entire range of skincare that has 10 different products in it because they're going to become overwhelmed and more than likely never come back and see you. And not only that, probably not even be able to afford to spend that amount of money in one transaction. I myself really understand that client on that level when I'm really educating them on skincare and when they're very new to looking after their skin, um, I take that into account. And for me, it's more important that that client will take home the right aftercare protocol for the procedure that I'm doing as opposed to taking home, I need a vitamin C and I need a vitamin A because everyone says it's good for me when it's not going to be potentially what they are going to use at the moment. So important. You and know, too many products. If they've been using very bland products, they will have a reaction. Let's face it; they're m- most more likely. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, I've been, I, I've seen therapists do it all the time, and you've gone in for a treatment, and clients say to all the time, you know, I wanted to go in for treatment, but they wouldn't do it until I'd gone through this whole prepping and skin program. And you've got to work with your client. I'm not saying don't prep the skin, but you've got to understand how you can work with that person. They said, you know, I've, I've been told by therapists, you can't come in until you've got the whole range and you've been using it for two weeks, blah, 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 even for a basic treatment. I'm like, F off. Like, I'm not interested. Like, it mm-hmm. it's my gears. <laughs> so I, I think we've got to understand, um, you know, where people are at and what their skincare requirements are before we get all sort of high and mighty with them and say, you know, 10 different products and otherwise you can't come and see me. And there, there are clinics out there that do that. Oh, absolutely. I I hear it from my clients when they first come to see me. But at the end of the day, that client wants a healthy skin. If they cannot afford to purchase, nor do they actually need those types of actives in the beginning, they are much more suited to taking the, the correct aftercare because to me, that's the most important thing. If I'm going to facilitate some sort of treatment on a client, I want to know that their skin is going to look good and feel good and recover from what I'm doing, not go and use a vitamin C that's going to create such a reaction on their skin um, just because everyone needs a vitamin C. You know, like as a therapist, you have to really look at your client on a very personal level and understand them on a personal level and what they are wanting to achieve, what they can spend, what sort of results they want, how often they're wanting to come in and see me at the clinic you know, what their financial budget is. You know, there's so much to take into account when I do prescribe a skin treatment plan for a client. I really spend a lot of time getting to know them um, in that consultation process. You know, we talk for a long time and I ask the right questions to get the right information. Um, and, and that's important. They don't want to walk away, number one, with 10 products they're never going to use and be overwhelmed and confused or walk away knowing... or potentially having a skin that's going to react the next day from a treatment you know that's not going to look good on on me either and it it happens all the time so look I think the takeaways from here really is 
you know, if someone's trying to sell you hundreds of products and it's not resonating, don't feel pressured to buy something. Um, Absolutely. I think if someone's scaremongering on ingredients and telling you this ingredient's bad, just looking at the back of a label without sort of putting it into context, that's a red flag. I think, you know, we need to understand the poison is in the dose. So if someone is saying this ingredient is toxic or um, carcinogenic, which you hear a lot, you know, ask at what percentage is that toxic? You know, where are the studies at? Was it tested in vitro, in vivo? Was it tested with anything else? Was it used at 100%, which usually it is? Is it even, is that study even relevant to skincare? Because quite often, you know, for instance, with pegs, for instance, people will say, oh, you know, pegs are bad because they produce one for dioxane and that's a carcinogen. And it's like, well, pegs in skincare, the, the one for dioxane has to be vacuum stripped and removed. So you wouldn't ever be getting a toxic percentage in your skincare. So it's not even really relevant. And most of this scaremongering with the clean beauty brands isn't relevant. Um, it's taken out of concept context so I think the poison is in the dose and it's important to remember that apple analogy is 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 key when people are doing that so and really any ingredient in skincare can sound scary if you take it out of context you know even water you know people can die from water (laughs) overdose of water yes (laughs) you can overdose from water did you know that if you drink too much water you can die so, I mean, you can scaremonger on anything. So it's about questioning where the motive is coming from and is that really information that is evidence-based and valid and, you know, let, let's dig a bit deeper and find out what's really going on there. And I think that's the moral of the story there, that a lot of those ingredient myths just take them with a grain of salt and people are just sort of hearing something online and then repeating it and then it just spreads like wildfire and before we know it everyone's scared of parabens and sulfates and they're not really understanding that that the final formula is king it's the right information and that's what i love about what we're doing we're just really giving people the correct information um the basic knowledge that they need to understand okay i need to think a little bit deeper on this topic you know that's good absolutely well i will see you in the next episode rose on the irony of beauty and i think we're talking about Anti-aging lunchtime treatment. Yes, I cannot wait to talk about this topic. Um, yes, very passionate about this. I'm excited. You are. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. <laughs> Thank you, Fiona. Thank you.